next day she got up and she was like, there's my pink. He did it again. And, and we're going, yes, he did. He did that for you. This, by the way, listeners, is a wonderful man named Any. To begin our season on beauty, this 12-episode excursion <laughs> into the heart of the transcendental power of beauty and the Catholic arts, I wanted to begin with a story. It's a story of a young girl, Annie's daughter, and her love of the color pink. And so it was her birthday, and she's a she's a pink lover. She loves pink, and so on her birthday, we you know the sun was setting, and we ran up to the top, and we're like, hey, look, you know, like Zelly, you know, God, he made that, he made that for you. Look, it's pink. He made that for you. And uh, she's like, it's my pink, it's my pink. You know, she was Aww. like, but but from then on, I mean, I'm talking about like last night. She truly believes that every time there's pink in the sky, every time there's pink in the sky, that God put that pink there just for her. And, you know, she's four now. And he did. Um, I mean. She's not wrong. Not wrong. It was one of these things where the next next day she got up and she was like, there's my pink. He did it again. And, And we're going, yes, he did. He did that for you. That is exactly right. She's not she's not wrong and I think that that is where that's where again that's where that truth and goodness meet that beauty and going like wait a minute this is all for me this is all for us like if I was the only person here God you know would still have created this and he still wants to interact with me in this place season two is here folks I'm so excited This is the story of the case for beauty. to be exact. And while I was there, I was speaking with a very dear friend and looking at some of the items to be auctioned. Now, our son's school auction, I'm guessing like most nowadays, is rather high tech. (laughs) You can follow the items on your phone. And most importantly, you can see how many bids there have been for each item, the bid cost, etc. So my husband and I are just, we are just terrible with our budget at these sorts of things. We really need to go in with a better game plan. But This year, I saw this really beautiful painting on auction from a local artist, reasonably priced, and I was shocked because I'm looking at my phone and I see that no one had placed a bid on it yet. So Raina and I had been looking for some new art for our bedroom and we liked this piece, so we just decided, what the heck, let's just place a bid. But then, of course, the doubts started to creep in, right? So I quickly ran to the back and my friend was there. It was only really about 10 feet away from where I was sitting to actually see the painting up close instead of looking at it on my phone. (laughs) And my instincts were right. It was 
beautiful. A simple watercolor of a snowy wilderness with evergreens and leafless aspens. It was really quite wonderful and just as it happens it would fit the color scheme of my bedroom which is great. Always a plus. <laughs> so I'm telling my friend about this painting and I look down at my phone and much to my sadness someone else had placed a bid. Much higher actually than the one that we had put down. Well, there, my friend said, you don't have to bid for it anymore because someone else bid for it. Now, I think that she thought we had placed a bid on it because maybe we felt sorry for the artist or something, but that's actually not why. I placed a bid on it because I like the painting, right? It was simple and lovely and it would be perfect for our room. So I decided to bid again. And I think if I remember correctly, I went back and forth a little bit and lo and behold, we went home with the painting. So why am I telling you this? Well, I'm telling you this because of something my friend asked me as I was going through this little bidding war. She said, why did you spend all of that money on a painting when you could have bought something more useful? Now, let me be very clear here. My friend is an amazing person, (laughs) probably one of the best people I know, actually. But she wasn't exactly wrong. You know, she was asking something which simply reflects what a lot of us have encountered over the years. Why bother with beautiful things? Why buy the watercolor art, which might end up at a yard sale in 30 years, I don't know, (laughs) when you can buy something with more value, more usefulness? Why have something simply to look at when you can get grocery gift cards or date night packages or even trips for your family? Why bother with beauty? This season is all about setting out to answer that question. In a time and a world when we value things based on their usefulness and productivity, why even bother with the arts, right? From the simple painting of a local artist to the Caravaggio in Rome, (laughs) to the theater piece in your hometown, to the music of our liturgy. In this season, we are diving into the world of the Catholic arts to answer the question about why beauty matters and why we need more of it in our lives. And to get to the bottom of this, we're going to be under the guidance of several wonderful people. (laughs) But in particular, we're going to have as our guide three primary experts. First of all, please call me David. David Clayton, to be exact. Provost at Pontifex University. My name is Elizabeth Lev. Art historian in Rome. And then there's this guy. I'm Corey Hyman, creative director at Likeable Art. We'll be hearing from these three throughout the season as their particular expertise and insights will have a lot to tell us about the state of art and beauty in the modern world and in our church. But for today, I only wanted to focus on one thing their biographies. (laughs) Because as I spoke with each of them, with David, Liz, and Corey, I realized there were parts of their stories which uniquely tell the story we need to hear today. What beauty means in each of our lives. And we'll end by speaking with an incredible couple who have figured out the secret to living beauty in their day to day. So first up, we're going to call this section Beauty as a Gateway. And we're going to tell this story through the story of this wonderful man. First of all, please call me David. Um, I'm sorry, David. <laughs> <laughs> um, I never know. <laughs> so, I am uh, 
56 years old and I've been a Catholic since I was 30. I reached out to David for several reasons, all of which will hopefully become clear as this episode goes on. But first and foremost, I was drawn to David's story of his conversion and the integral role beauty played in that story. And that story begins in a place that I really hope to visit someday, (laughs) in London, England. I'd always had an interest in the arts, and the connection between the arts and faith was intensified because uh, important in my conversion was the connection with a church called the Brompton Oratory. The Brompton Oratory, also known as the Church of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, is located in London, England and home to the Congregation of the Oratory of St. Philip Neri. The Oratory has been around since 1880. Blessed John Henry Newman actually was instrumental in founding the Order of Brothers who run the Oratory. But for today, I wanted to talk about the beauty of the place. Now again, I've never been there, I've never been to London or England, (laughs) but one look at the online tour and I am struck by just the magnitude of this place. Several small side chapels, all adorned with incredible art, high ceilings, magnificent statues, probably most notable culminating in the high altar, which, and this by the way is a direct quote from the website, (laughs) has escaped the ravages of some of the reordering schemes which followed Vatican II. (laughs) That made me laugh so hard for some reason when I first read that. (laughs) And for David, as a young adult in the 1990s, he one day stumbled into the remarkable site just as he started investigating Christianity in his spiritual life. Between the beauty of the liturgy and the incredible art and architecture, David said that the Brompton Oratory seemed to speak of a different place entirely, one not of this world. Polyphony music, art from the High Renaissance, Baroque-style architecture, what so many find old-fashioned and ornate, David found new life. It was painted so as to be in harmony with the liturgy. So I became aware of how art and music and the worship of God and the architecture, the style is neo-Baroque, it's a Victorian neo-Baroque church, how all of these things can work in harmony. You see, for David and for so many I know, this magnificence, this unspeakable beauty which he encountered in the building and in the liturgy was the entry point for a lifelong journey of faith. After two years, David became a Catholic and has spent the rest of his life inspiring others, both personally and professionally, to capture and encounter beauty along their journeys as well. Professionally, David has always been interested in the arts, and after some time in the professional sphere, he decided to take a risk and pursue painting full-time. He began to study not just the methods of painting, but more importantly, the methods of teaching and training. David was pretty adamant with me in our talk, by the way, about the need for good art schools, not simply good art. I agree with him on this. (laughs) He started to get commissions, started to write a little bit, had an incredible mentor in a man named Stratford Caldecott, and eventually got a job as an artist in residence at Thomas More College in New Hampshire. I'd always felt that the U.S. was the place where this was going to happen because there's more money, more Catholics. The general attitude is one of being interested in the efforts that people make in new initiatives, even if they're traditional. 
Whereas in Britain, the first question is, well, have you, have you thought about this? And what about this? <laughs> it tends to be tends to be very different. Whereas here, it's a, yes, that's great. And and then, you know, it's, it's just a, there's a different mindset, as I perceive it anyway. During this time, David started writing for various publications, most notably the new liturgical blog, and soon had his own blog called The Way of Beauty. And these ideas eventually made their way into a variety of books. The Way of Beauty is more about uh, a theory of culture and education. So it's addressing similar concerns, but coming at it from a different place. And I even really described ideas about how to the basis of a university and the part that beauty has to play in engendering creativity, forming the person, really affecting people deeply in their hearts in a way that a a purely intellectual approach doesn't. Because the books speak of the importance of education and the formation of the whole person and the role beauty plays in that formation, David started getting noticed by a group of people looking to start a new university focused on the sacred arts. They asked David to be provost. In fact, (laughs) this university, Pontifex, is an online university with a master's in sacred arts and even a new theology doctorate program. More information about these, by the way, can be found on our website. But through our discussion about education and the arts... David kept saying this one thing which really struck me. We have a crisis in the faith at the moment. It's a crisis of, in some ways, of the imagination. And it's, it's too, in, in many respects, imaginations run wild and in the wrong direction. Hmm. Um, or they're limited. But to have faith, we have to believe it's something we cannot see, we cannot hear, We cannot touch. It's not mediated by the senses directly. And yet, even though faith is the act of submitting to all which we cannot see, beauty allows us a small glimpse of the great what could be. Or if you're a person of faith, of course, the great what is, right? (laughs) Beauty is the entry point. It is the start of a journey, but it can also do something else. It doesn't strictly interact with the physical senses alone, but beauty can also engage and enlighten the mind. Which brings me to our next expert for this season and part two of our episode today. We're going to call this section Beauty Can Educate. And we have Elizabeth Lev as our guide. My name is Elizabeth Lev. I am an art historian. I teach art history here in Rome, Italy for the Duquesne University Italian Abroad Program. I do tours. I write books. If it has to do with art and faith, I'm usually involved. I reached out to Elizabeth because of a book of hers I came across recently called How Catholic Art Saved the Faith, The Triumph of Beauty and Truth in Counter-Reformation Art. This book is absolutely amazing. (laughs) I love it so much. It's just a beautiful book for stuff. But in the book, Elizabeth walks the reader through various important works of art from the 16th and 17th century and explains the apologetic and catechetical nature of those works. In other words, she explains how artists educated the faithful about the truths of the faith in a time of chaotic theological messages. And as I came to find out, that story isn't too 
far from her own. Elizabeth was raised Catholic, fell in love with the arts at a young age, and even studied art history at the University of Chicago. But it was during her time at the University of Bologna for her graduate studies that she started exploring the relationship between specific works of art and the Catholic faith. And in particular, how art had been used over the centuries to communicate doctrinal truths. I got more and more interested in context of art. So if an art is hanging on an altar, what is it doing there? What happens on the altar? Why is the story of the painting somehow connected? And how does the painter make a connection between the activity of the liturgy and the painting. And the more I grew to study things from that context, the more I began to believe that, A, these artists who produce these beautiful works of art really believed in God and the saints and the sacraments. And it, it, it drew me ever more convinced to the truth of Catholicism. You see, for Elizabeth and for the church as well, art for its own sake is never what is promoted or even successful, right? (laughs) Art, and as such beauty, must be intricately connected and woven with truth and goodness. Spiritual works of art are only able to communicate the depths of God's love and the incredible beauty of his life when they also tell the truth. Well, beauty first and foremost, it's a it's a word, the beautiful is a, a word that is a transcendental when you use it, the, the word kalos, which is a, is a word that means not only beautiful, but good and true. And so I think one of the things that in our faith we understand there is an objective truth Um, And there is an objective truth of beauty. And when beauty is able to communicate the truth, let's not forget also communicate the goodness of the moral life, then all of a sudden we look at beauty in a different way, right? Now, beauty can change. What is considered beautiful often changes. For example, there have been periods in history where regularity was beautiful and there have been periods where irregularity (laughs) was beautiful. But what should never change is the way beauty communicates truth and goodness. And when it does this well, whether through the masterpiece of the Sistine Chapel or the masterpiece of an incredible mountain range in the Rocky Mountains, it will pierce your heart in ways you didn't even know were possible. But it is something, beauty is something that reveals a a, a greatness, a goodness, a truth to us. It doesn't necessarily always have to be aesthetically ideal. Caravaggio's paintings are often aesthetically disconcerting, but the fact is art opens, beauty opens a a, a window to another world in the way that Cardinal Ratzinger, before he became Pope Benedict, and even as Pope Benedict XVI, often used to say that beauty wounds us. It it creates a a, a crevice, a a vulnera, a chink in our everyday armor, and in that chink, all kinds of things can get in. So beauty not only wounds us, but it is supposed to also teach us something, right, about the source of all beauty, God himself. Think, for example, about one of the central complaints against the church in the modern era. I'm sure you've heard this before. I've heard this dozens of times. Well, if you're so dedicated to the poor, then why do you have all of these lavish gold items, right? (laughs) Why have a gold chalice or paten when you can have a glass or a wood one? But even here, beauty is meant to teach us something. We have the most precious of metals, 
because it is meant to teach us about the most precious of things in this life, right? The blessed sacrament. But those things are transformed in our faith into God. And so how else do we make people understand? It's a way of making people understand that this is it's precious beyond beyond reason. It's precious beyond our understanding by taking the most precious things we can account, we can we can we can find using the best of our craftsmanship and creating a cornice for this humble and yet miraculously transformed bread, wine, water, salt, oil. Part of our discussion brings me to something else too. When I talked with Liz about this point, I realized that part of the problem doesn't even have to do with the church at all, right? Part of the problem is the same thing that my friend mentioned at the top of this episode, the same thing many and many of us have heard and probably thought throughout our lives. It's not simply that gold is expensive and lavish. It's that we shouldn't even care that it's gold to begin with, right? Why bother with beauty? If it doesn't provide my life with value or even with utility, then why does it matter? I'm a theologian and I love asking these kinds of questions, but I also love talking to people who are boots on the ground when it comes to beauty and there is no one better (laughs) to take us into this next section than this guy. I'm Corey Hyman, creative director at Likeable Art. I like to make things and to help people make things. And especially my most important things are furthering people's mission, who I totally agree with and think they're doing awesome work and also just trying to raise up the next generation of artists. I'm calling this section Beauty Teaches Us About Ourselves. We'll get more into this in the next two episodes. But for now, I want to talk a little bit about Corey's own life and his own dedication to the arts and what it teaches us about how the world understands the arts and beauty. I've always been interested in art and filmmaking. But in spite of this interest, there was always something in Corey that made him think about the arts as an academic subject or even as a profession in a negative way. For example, Corey told me a story about something which happened to him his senior year of high school. I was signing up for all my classes, right? And I had one last class to sign up for. I could have done advanced ceramics or a study hall. So what did I choose loving the arts? Well, I chose study hall. Why? You might ask, well, I chose study hall because I saw arts as laziness. So if you if you do eight art classes at my high school and get an A in all eight, then you get a special arts certificate with your degree. And so I saw that certificate as this man is lazy. That's what I saw that as, right? So I had, t- I had gotten an A in seven art classes, and I knew if I had one more that I'd get that certificate, right? So that's where my mindset was as a 17-year-old. Think of how many times we've heard this in our popular culture or even from close friends. You're going going to study art, (laughs) art history, music. Why, right? You won't be able to get a job. You'll just paint pretty pictures for your degree. Is that really what you want to do with the rest of your life? 
The way we approach artists and even those in the art profession might just be a small indication of how we as a culture have slowly come to devalue the arts and maybe even beauty itself. But even that phrase seems kind of weird to say because devalue, right, implies we're trying to find a utilitarian value on everything. We should only invest in things, the culture tells us, which have usefulness. I think that's just really dangerous. I think that is something that we, I don't even, I don't, nobody purposely pumped that into me. You know what I mean? Nobody was pounding that into me growing up. But slowly but surely, I saw education is for something other than art. After high school, Corey went to Steubenville, studied theology, but always found himself tinkering in the labs, making videos, hanging out with other students in the arts and communication department, working on projects. You see, it's actually ironic (laughs) the more I thought about Corey's story, because by studying the greatest story ever told, theology, Corey came to understand more about his role in that story. And soon, his passion and his area of study slowly weaved together. He started taking freelance work, doing media projects on the side, and this passion became something from which he could make a living. And even then, even then, when Corey had shown it was possible to be successful in the Catholic creative space, even then there was still a small part of him that doubted what he was doing was actually worth value in our modern understanding of the term. Eventually, I had a little bit more work and was like, well, once I get married, I'll get a real job. Then I got married and uh, I was like, well, once we have a kid, I'll get a real job. And then we had a kid and then we had another kid. And so it really wasn't until, you know, I was probably four or five years into this when I realized, oh, I'm doing what I love to do. I'm working with people I love to work with. You know, I'm making enough. I've turned down a couple jobs. Like I'm not looking for a different job. This is, this is the work I love. I love Corey's story because it perfectly illustrates the forces which pull us in different directions when it comes to the arts. But his story has also made me realize that in a sense, Corey isn't doing anything exclusive or remarkable, right? Corey is doing what we're all called to do, present the beauty of Christ to the world. Just after Corey got married about seven years ago, a very close friend of his suddenly passed away. And there was something this friend used to say to Corey, which made him look at his life and work and the way we're called to see our own lives and how we're each called to bring Christ into the world. And he said this, and I've just adopted this as my mission for the last 10 years since I read this. He said, if I were to have a mission, I'd assume it goes as the follows. To present Christ, Christ is irresistible to the yearning heart. I think whenever we break that down, if we believe Christ is who he said who he says he is, right? If we believe that, then he's irresistible. And my job isn't to make Christ irresistible. My only my job is to present him as the irresistible self he is. So beauty draws us in, beauty can educate and enlighten our minds, our faith, and beauty can show us something about ourselves, can draw out our passions, and can show us our place in this beautiful story of salvation. But what can this look like in the everyday? 
Corey believes we're all called to be artists. More on that in the next episode, by the way. (laughs) But let's be honest, we're not all called to be artists in the same way. For example, I, (laughs) oh my goodness, do not play Pictionary with me. (laughs) I am so bad. (laughs) But I think a living a life filled with beauty is actually even more simple than what we might think of as the traditional arts world, right? It's about the everyday ways we choose to capture and see the beauty of creation and the beauty of our creator. And I think now is a good time to reintroduce an absolutely wonderful couple. So my uh, my name's Annie Hickman. I am the fourth, actually. So my my great-grandfather gave me this name. It, it's an old French name. Aimant is the name. And it's an old, old school, sixth century bishop martyr from Lyon, France. That's, that's where the name comes from. And Annie is married to a wonderful woman named Kena. Right. I ended up at Franciscan um, after converting when I was 17 years old from a non-denominational Protestant faith. So I grew up very close to Jesus. My parents did a great job of filling in me a love for our Lord, but they actually became Catholic first. We were missionaries for six years in Central America, and then they decided that they had to move back to the U.S. and become Catholic, which was its own crazy story. But I <laughs> I ended up, um, yeah, be, uh, following them into the church um, when I was 17, and then, you know, like a crazy person, ended up at Franciscan <laughs> three months later. The two met when they were studying at the University of Steubenville. Annie, a cradle Catholic from Houston, and Kena, raised as an evangelical missionary, and for both of them, dating wasn't really on their minds. I was told by my spiritual director to go on some dates, and I also knew that she was sort of discerning religious life as well. And I was like, well, Kena's safe, you know? <laughs> I'm going to be a free. She's going to, she's going to. Yeah, she's looking to be a nun. She's looking to be a nun. So let's, yeah. So I put no effort into it. Well, very little effort. And well, gosh. I'm offended by that. She was super cute. I'm not going to lie. She was super cute. So to test the dating world, they went to a talent show together at Steubenville, went out for a milkshake afterwards. And as they say. The rest is history. We were, I think it was kind of over that milkshake. We're like, you're actually pretty cool. Like this is, this could kind of work. We could form our own monastery, you know? So, uh, but, but yeah. And yeah, so that's, that's kind of, that's kind of the story of that, I guess. And that monastery went on to have seven children, but there was something else about them that created a monastic way of living. Over the years, Annie and Kena have both worked for church in various capacities, right? They've worked for missionary organizations, parishes, schools. They've spent their professional and personal lives dedicated in service to the church, which brings us to their role today. Living in the heart of one of the biggest cities in the country, Houston, showing their neighbors the love of Christ through domestic missions. When we transitioned from you know, full-time professional parish ministry to uh, domestic missions, you know, there was sort of this pull towards humanity. You know, the, the idea that the laity, we, we, were, we were kind of up in the church and we had to wait for the people to come to our programs just didn't 
seem to coincide with the way that Jesus went about his ministry. You know, he's not sitting there waiting in the temple for people to come in. He was, he went out and about and, and reached people where they were at, what was natural to their lives, eating and drinking, you know, and, and carrying on with, uh, with average, ordinary, even marginalized folks. Annie and Kena just started a new mission, by the way, called the Del Rey Collective. I'm just going to take a brief side note and explain to you what this is because it's awesome. <laughs> the Del Rey Collective calls us to come together to invest in our local neighborhoods and communities. And you do this by registering your small group, your neighborhood potluck, your happy hours, whatever it is that you do to gather together as community. You can register on their website, the Del Rey Collective, and receive information on how to spread Christ's love in your homes and in your neighborhoods. We registered our neighborhood group, by the way, for more information. Please, please visit our website. It's just awesome what they're doing. Back to the story for a bit, because before we dive in to the how, how Annie and Kena live a life of beauty, we first need to understand the why. Again, there's that question. Why bother with beauty? I think that, um, I mean, we talked about leading with beauty. Actually, Rhett Singer said that he was the one who kind of talked about that to begin with, that God is truth, beauty, and goodness, right? But if we have truth isolated, we can categorically know, for example, that God is creator, right? We can, you know, that that is truth. We know it to be true. But if we don't have the fleshy experience of the beauty of his creation and what he did as creator, um, if we don't encounter the teeny tiny little, you know, intricate daffodil or whatever, you know, and, and the, the vast expanse of, you know, like mountain ranges and all of the different beauty that you find, especially in his creation, we don't get the same sense and consolation of that truth. And as a result of this, any Inkena can show all of us about the how. Because it's things like this that made me reach out to Kena and Annie in the first place. I'd heard about them through a variety of people, but mainly in hearing about the simple ways they have learned how to spread Christ's love through beauty, including their weekly neighborhood potlucks. We, we have the term, we, we say lead with beauty, you know, so leading, you know, leading with beauty means, you know, make sure that there's some music on, you know, make sure that the chips and salsa are out. Make sure that the the room is a little bit inviting. There's some candles lit that, you know, people can come in and feel comfortable and just get a sense of beauty by the art on the walls or, you know, the, the, the textiles or whatever, you know, whatever is, whatever is there. Isn't this amazing? (laughs) Imagine if we all viewed our lives this way, there is nothing remarkable about what any and Kena are doing. Any and Kena, in fact, live like many of us do. They live in the heart of the Houston suburbs what can feel like a sea of concrete house upon house. So they have learned not only to create beauty in their lives, but also how to seek it. We believe that creation and and travel and culture and art and music and, you know, cuisine, cuisine, food, culinary arts, you know, tequila, whatever. these, These are the things, these are the things that God, you know, has, has given us to, to show us in our mortal bodies, you know, what grace 
a taste of grace can, can be, you know, whether that's a feast of our eyes or a feast, you know, on a plate, you know, we really feel like God really has something to say to us through his creation and through um, immersion and culture. A few years ago, in the midst of the noise and chaotic life in one of America's busiest cities, Eni and Kana decided they needed a break. They decided for six months to take a sabbatical, pack up the kiddos, and venture to Guatemala for a period of rest and adventure. And when they returned, refreshed and with a new sense of mission and purpose, Annie and Kana realized how many other people would benefit from an experience like the one they had had. And out of that desire came how I stumbled upon Annie and Kana, a mission called Pilgrimage to Beauty. The idea of pilgrimage, right? You just get the, you know, when you say pilgrimage, you normally, you know, people think of like, you know, we're going to go and we're all going to have a name tag on a lanyard and there's going to be a guy with a, you know, a stick with a number on it. And we're going to walk into, you know, St. Peter's Square, which is awesome and beautiful and all those things. And we're going to go to the Holy Land and those types of deals. And those trips are great. And we've been on a few of those and they're fantastic. And those, the architecture is another piece of this. I mean, you know, they're, no, we're not downplaying that. But the cathedral of the, you know, of Lake Atilan, you know, was c- created by the creator, you know, like his hands created this thing, the stars at night, the universe, those types of things appeal to us. It's not that the, that the basilicas are unimportant, but, but realizing that you can go on a pilgrimage, uh, you know, it can be an adventure to get there, the pilgrimage to beauty, to a, to a beautiful spot, you know, so that, that's kind of where pilgrimage to beauty. Uh, that, that That's where that came from. Several times a year, Annie and Kena lead groups on a week-long excursions to some of the most beautiful places in the world, particularly in Guatemala. The idea is not simply to encounter beauty, but it's to uncover the small moments of beauty by simply resting and being in the presence of God. Every excursion on their trips are optional, and there's plenty of time for prayer, rest, and immersion into the local culture. I'm going to let Annie set the scene for us about a recent pilgrimage they had, completely unedited, by the way, <laughs> so you get a sense of just what Annie and Kana are trying to do on these trips. It was kind of a crazy travel day. We, when on the on our December our Advent our Advent pilgrimage. We go directly to this lake called Lake Atitlan. Atitlan is probably one of the most beautiful lakes in the world. I, I would put it up against any other lake. You, you, you got to go look it up. It's this incredible, deep, deep water, cold lake surrounded by three volcanoes. And it's where the Maya people fled to when they were, you know, being kind of eradicated by smallpox and, and um, colonials. And so it's pretty much 100% indigenous tribes that live around this lake. So not only is the lake itself beautiful, but the culture and the people is like one of the most, it's the best preserved Maya, you know, if you want to get a full immersion into Mayan culture, you, you need to go to this lake. So we go straight directly there and we're late getting there. And so we get on our boat to head to our little casita and it's already dark. dark. Yeah. And uh, of course there's no, you know, it's Central America. It's a third world country. You're getting on a boat with somebody that, you know, you just met 
you know, your first languages are different and you're a little bit afraid and there's, you know, there's just adrenaline. You're, you're in the adventure and you're like, I, we believe our casita is that way, you know, and it's a mile on the lake and, and, you know, there's no lights and I'm guessing at like firelight. I'm like, I think that's it. I think that's it. I think that's it. And we finally, you know, we finally, finally, finally find the place. We get there. You can smell the lush gardens, the trees and the flowers. It's pitch black, but you know that you're, we're just in the middle of a jungle. We get to the casita, there's power, we turn it on. There's just, it's absolutely exactly what we were looking for. Beautiful. We know the volcanoes are out there in the darkness. We sit down on the hammock, take a deep breath. It's just completely silent you know and and you know and there's like literally not a movement This season is all about beauty. It's about the ways, big and small, that God is trying to communicate his love and mercy through the transcendental power of beauty. It's about the ways the Catholic Church has and has not encouraged the Catholic arts, has and has not encouraged its flock to embrace the arts. And it's about the ways we as human beings have failed in bringing truth and goodness into the beauty we share. How our cultural standards of beauty have even seeped into the walls of our churches. But the stories of David and Liz and Corey and especially Annie and Kena, have shown us the power beauty has to transform our lives and draw us closer to the love and mercy of the source of all beauty. I'm going to end today's episode with one more story. This summer, Annie and Kena took the whole family on a trip to my neck of the woods, Colorado. And on their final night in Silverthorne, a beautiful town in the mountains, Annie and Kena saw an opportunity. An opportunity in a spirit of adventure to seek and capture a moment of beauty for their family. I'm going to let Kena tell the rest of the story. God bless you listeners, and we'll see you in a few weeks. A couple nights were kind of cloudy, so we didn't really get to see the sunset. And one night um, that it was starting to, you know, the sun was starting to set, set, and we realized, oh my goodness, this is going to be the most gorgeous sunset. And so we like hurried all the kids and we went and we all jumped in the car and we just went to go chase the sunset to find the best vantage point to watch the sun go down. And I, I mean, there's a physical 
like reaction that happens in my body when I see when I see that kind of gorgeous beauty. I don't know how to explain it. I mean, it just and there's like almost no way to stop myself from saying, you know, like expressions of of praise and of glory to God, because we, I know that it's him, you know, who gave that gift to us in that moment. And all my kids, you know, felt very much the same way. I mean, there was so much joy and so much laughter in that experience of chasing the sunset and watching, um, you know, watching the sun go down from the beginning of the sunset all the way till it was dark, you know, and, um, and seeing the way the rays of light, you know, change the landscape around us. And it was absolutely breathtaking and it just, you know, caused so much joy, um, in our family, I think we'll always remember that particular sunset. Thank you so, 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 so much (laughs) to all the incredible people we spoke to today, to Corey and Liz and David, who we'll be hearing from more this season. Thank you for your insights. To Annie and Kena, thank you so much for just allowing us to share with you a little bit on this journey, this journey towards beauty. The beautiful instrumental music you heard today, by the way, was a song called For the Beauty of the Earth, which you may have heard before, but it was orchestrated by Sean Williams and Lisa Sedelak. I'm so very grateful for them and for Focus Beauty Initiative letting me use their music. We will be back, folks, in two weeks for a two-part series on the arts and the creative process. I'm so excited for that series and for this whole season of beauty. If you like what we're doing, we would be so, so grateful for your continued support. You can support us by following us on social media, Instagram, and Facebook by leaving a review. I don't know why it helps, but it just does. (laughs) It would be really nice. And actually, we are newly on Patreon. I would absolutely be grateful for your support there. On Patreon, you'll receive some bonus materials, including from audio, which just couldn't make it for one reason or another into the episode. So we'd love your support. God bless you all, and we'll see you in a few weeks.